some kind of groundwork or foundation at some of these principles uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, it has to do with uh, the women's role in church, uh, headship and submission and all kinds of fun stuff like that, Uh, women's roles in ministry, Uh, great stuff, a hot topic in our world today. It's a... um, it's a very emotionally charged topic. And so I'm going to request everybody sets down any large, hard objects. Okay? For my safety. No. Um, in our world today, uh, we live in a time in which uh, the voice of feminism has grown and gained great strength and power. And uh, largely... Because throughout the generations, women honestly have been mistreated. Women have been uh, abused and mistreated and misused in many ways. And of recent, really the past about 100 to 150 years, women have really stood up and began to take uh, their own rights um, and their own protection in hand. And women have largely gained a voice in the last 100 years that they've never had before really in any time in history. And uh, some of that, I believe, is a very good thing. And I want to say right up front that I, uh, having worked many years counseling women, dealing with women who have been abused and misused and oppressed in uh, all kinds of ways, I am one who believes very much in the rights and protection and, uh, beyond that, the honoring of women. Uh, But at the same time, uh, this feminist voice has taken some rather interesting turns and twists and extremes and has gained a hearing uh, really in a large chunk of society and within the church. And part of the, the uh, goal of feminism is they see men as evil and uh, there's, a, there's a large segment of the population, mostly female, who would like to see men eliminated from the face of the planet and uh, they believe that that would be the, the solution to all the world's problems. Now, we'll grant that would solve a lot of the world's problems. Um, and uh, there may be some good benefits in that. However, uh, I don't know that that's God's design. Um, there's also a strong push that says if, if, you know, we need to make men and women equal. And, uh, and there's a, a strong push for equality, which, again, may be a very good thing. The women and men are treated equal, paid equal for equal work, that kind of thing. Um, but that voice is having more of, an, more of an influence on the church and on church practice, on church life, on the family, on the home. And uh, it's changing the roles of, of women in the church. Uh, more and more churches are ordaining women as pastors. Uh, in more and more homes, women have much more voice and say than they did 100 years ago. And it's changing the roles of women in the workplace, in the church, in the home. And also, as it changes those roles, it changes the roles of men as well. And um, the question for us is, what's really biblical in all this? What does the Bible really say? Uh, Does the Bible set out specific roles and places for men and women? Uh, Or, as some would argue, is it just a, uh, a matter of culture? Uh, some people say that, you know, the Bible was written during a time when males dominated culture and society, and so the Bible reflects that, but it's not really a universal principle that if we could somehow liberate women and uh, kind of squash, put men down in their place, 
that we would need to reread and maybe even somewhat rewrite Scripture to reflect these new cultural values that God didn't really design uh, for men to be in any way above women, uh, but that's just part of the fallen nature and that as God's redemption unfolds, uh, Scripture would reflect that. That's what some people would say. Um, others would say, uh, you know, that, that there is a very clear order and that the Bible says very clearly that, that men are to take leadership roles uh, in the home and in, in the church. Um, so what is biblical? Uh, does, the, does the Bible teach that God has some designed order in things or is it arbitrary? Uh, are women forever doomed to be second-class citizens by God's decree? You know, that seems kind of harsh that God would do that. Um, are women forever barred from significant ministry in a public setting? Well, those are a lot of the questions. Uh, I don't really plan to answer them all this morning, and probably not even in the two se- sessions that we'll look at this. But at the very least, I hope to make everybody mad at some point. Okay, that's kind of my goal. So if you don't get mad this Sunday, come back. I'll try my hardest to offend you next week. Or in two weeks, actually. I won't be here next Sunday. Well, let's look at First uh, Corinthians chapter 11. And this, this really will be fun. Uh, starting in verse 2, let me just read through uh, what Paul's talking about here. He says, I am so glad, dear friends, that you always keep me in your thoughts and you are following the Christian teaching I passed on to you. But there's one thing I want you to know. A man is responsible to Christ, a woman is responsible to her husband, and Christ is responsible to God. A man dishonors Christ if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her husband if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her head. For this is the same as shaving her head. Yes, if she refuses to wear a head covering, she should cut off all her hair. And since it is shameful for a woman to have her hair cut or her head shaved, then she should wear a head covering. A man should not wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is God's glory, made in God's own image. But woman is the glory of man. For the first man didn't come from woman, but the first woman came from man. And man was not made for woman's benefit, but woman was made for a man. So, a woman should wear a head covering as a sign of authority because the angels are watching. But in relationships among the Lord's people, women are not independent of men, and men are not independent of women. For although the first woman came from a man, all men have been born from women ever since, and everything comes from God. What do you think about this? Is it right for a woman to pray to God in public without covering her head? Isn't it obvious that it's disgraceful for a man to have long hair? And isn't it obvious that long hair is a woman's pride and joy? For it has been given to her as a covering. But if anyone wants to argue about this, all I can say is that we have no other custom than this. And all the churches of God feel the same way about it. Okay. What in the world is Paul talking about here? Uh, Paul addresses the Corinthian church, and basically what he does here is he gives them a dress code for church. Okay? And uh, it's pretty plain and simple uh, that they were to have uh, this dress code, and the, the, the 
dress code was basically this, that the context here is in worship. He's talking about the worship service. And he's talking specifically about when they come to worship together, that men are to have their heads uncovered, no hats. Can I remember as a boy growing up asking my parents, why can't we wear hats in church? And they said, well, it's just disrespectful. Just didn't do it. And that tradition is really carried over for many thousands of years. Men don't wear hats in church. That's what it says. And then it says, conversely, that women ought to have their hair covered. Now, I don't see any ladies here with hats. So, man, what is, we've got a bunch of rebels here, apparently. Well, what is he talking about? Um, in, in addition to um, wearing a head covering, he's also talking here, and some of this has to be implied, but um, it's, it's implied that women also are to be wearing their hair up, kept up, and not, not cut short or shaved. Okay, he talks about that. Uh, what was going on? Well, to understand a little bit of the culture and the context, uh, it's, it's apparent that, you know, the Corinthian worship service was, was wild and crazy. You know, they were definitely on the charismatic side. They definitely got crazy during worship. They were not nearly as subdued as we are. We're pretty subdued in worship. They were not subdued. And it's, it's apparent that uh, they got kind of carried away in worship. And then as the women were worshiping, if they wore head coverings, they would fall off. And uh, in that day, in Greek society, all women would wear their hair up. They would keep their hair long, but they would wear it up in some kind of a bun or some kind of a hairdo that was up. And, uh, and it, it, uh, it is apparent that as they worshipped, their hair coverings would come off, and you know, they're just going crazy, and their hair would fall down and be loose and hanging down. And, uh, and that's really what Paul is addressing here. Uh, likewise, he talks about the men not wearing their hair, uh, their head covered, uh, and, uh, which is interesting because that would have been contrary to the Jewish tradition. Jews would have, when they went into the temple or the synagogue, when they prayed, they would have taken their prayer shawl and put it over their head. And so Paul's talking here not about a general rule or principle, but he's talking about something that was significant in that culture. And the reality is that culture has meaning. What does all this mean? Wearing your hair in a bun, you know, having it covered, not having it covered. Well, it's important to understand that it meant something in that culture. Uh, the things that we call culture or custom or tradition develop its, its uh, practice because of the meaning it has. Uh, for example, in Thailand, a, there are a lot of cultures and traditions. Uh, and if you lived here very long, you know that in Thailand, the head is very honored. And so you're very careful about how you relate yourself to somebody else's head. And we all know that that's why you bow. And if you go between a group of people, you lower your head as a way of showing respect and honor. And you see, it's not something we just do to do. It means something. Uh, I learned early on, my first few days in Thailand, you know, don't ever reach your hand over a Thai person's head because that's very offensive to them because they respect and honor their head. Uh, on the other end, you know, the feet in Thailand is very low and very dishonoring. And so we learn, you know, in culture not to, like, point your feet at people. You know, you don't point with your foot. That's very rude in this culture. You don't stick your foot towards somebody. It's very rude because it means something. And the same is true in all culture. All of our cultural practices mean something. Um, well, what did the hair thing mean in, in this culture in, in Corinth? 
Well, in Corinth, in, in Greek and Roman culture, men and women all basically dress the same. So, you know, it's great this morning, everybody's here all different kinds of colors, shirts, blouses, dress, you know, all kinds of styles. You know, if we were in church in Corinth, it would be much more boring. You know, pretty much it should be everybody, guys and girls, wearing robes, kind of all off-white, probably. Uh, maybe not too much like red and fluorescent green. It was pretty boring. And the only real distinctions between men and women was their hair. Uh, the only way you could really tell the difference, say, from the back would be their hairstyle. And women would have long, flowing hair wrapped up in these poofy buns, and uh, men would have short hair. And that was how they uh, separated the gender. All right? So um, Paul says that this distinction is important. In fact, he, he makes this great saying that the woman's hair is her glory. Uh, it's a glory, it's an honor, it's a, beautiful, it's a part of a woman's beauty to have this long, beautiful hair. Uh, when I first met my wife, long before we were married, when I, was, when I was, you know, 17 years old, she had this beautiful, long hair of a rather different color than it is now. And uh, I, I just thought her hair was awesome. I just thought she, she was so beautiful because she had this beautiful, long hair. And, uh, and it is part of what makes women beautiful. Now, I've seen some guys with some very long, beautiful hair as well, but we won't talk about that. We'll talk about that later. Um, also in that culture, so hair meant something, uh, and it was, a, it was a mark as it much is today of a woman's beauty. Um, also in that culture, shaved heads also had significance. I know today it's very popular to shave your heads, and it has a different cultural meaning in our context. In, in that culture and in that day, uh, it was very much connected with worship in the idol temples and paganism. And much, it's interesting, uh, much like Buddhism today, if you were to, to make a special gift of devotion of yourself in, an, in a pagan temple, as part of the, the worship, you would shave your head, both men and women. And it's interesting that in Buddhism, when, when women become monks, that they do what? They shave their head. And uh, they, they really strip themselves of one of their great identifying marks of being female, of being a woman. And uh, um, it really, I believe, is a mark of going against what God has created. And that's a lot of what Paul is getting at here, is that God has a created order that he made men and women different. He made them unique and separate. And part of how we dress and part of how we worship ought to reflect the distinction between manness and femaleness. And I think it's very interesting that to this day, in, in, in pagan, what I would consider pagan religions, that, uh, that they blur those distinctions, that they try to undo what God put in his created order, that uh, what ma- God made separate, man tries to blur those distinctions. Okay, so that's the kind of things that he's talking about, and that's some of the meaning of what he's talking about here. One more thing, though, the, the hair falling down thing, what did that mean? So he doesn't like, he likes the head covered, which uh, was a sign of respect. He likes the lady's hair nice and pretty and long but put up, and the guy's hair short and, you know, sharp looking. That that military haircut, right? The damruat cut, if you want. That's what I tell my my barber I want. Uh, Last thing, the the woman's hair hanging down. Um, uh, That was a problem as well. And the problem is that was really that they were showing too much feminine beauty. 
Okay, in that culture, in that day, if you let your hair down, it was really a sign of being seductive. Okay, if you were a prostitute in that day, you know, you didn't wear boots and a mini skirt and a low-cut blouse. You wore the same robe everybody else did. So how would they mark themselves apart? Well, they would untie their hair and let their hair fall loose. Okay, and for in that day, for a woman to wear her hair down and loose, it was a mark of being seductive, of being a prostitute, of making a statement that says, you know, I am a loose woman. Okay? And that day, having your hair down was something reserved for private intimacy between a husband and a wife. Okay? And you just didn't wear it down publicly. So, what Paul is basically saying here is that in a culture where these things are true, uh, if in the middle of your worship service you're getting carried away and you're not watching out for yourself, or you just don't care, and you allow your, for a woman allows her head to be uncovered and her hair to fall down, it's just distracting. Why? Well, because the guy standing behind you is going, that lady's hair's down. Okay? Now I can relate to this a little bit. As I preach around in different countries and different places, uh, for me a very distracting thing is being in a place where uh, a lot of these rural tribal places where women will breastfeed their babies right in front of you without any modesty at all. You know, they just take their shirts off and start breastfeeding. And you know, you're up in front of preaching, it's a bit distracting. Okay? It's not that it's obscene or that you know, I've never seen this kind of thing before, but it's not part of my culture. And so I get kind of, every time I get kind of like, but I'm not looking there. <laughs> and you just kind of preach to this side for a while, right? <laughs> Another good example that happened uh, several months ago, we had a church planting uh, workshop here in Chiang Mai, and uh, Mike Conserva was helping translate. We had a guy from the States uh, teaching Mike Gunn, actually. And um, we're, we're, we're teaching a lot of front, teaching and translating and sharing. And uh, we were asking people in the audience to share uh, some things from their culture, some things that could be used as kind of doors to open to the gospel. And this one very kind Thai uh, lady who was from some uh, area in northern Thailand, church worker, pastor's wife, stood up to share. And she was wearing this really bright red t-shirt. And in English words, with letters this big, it said, how do you spell relief? And on the, sh- on the front was this big, huge marijuana leaf, and written underneath said, marijuana. Well, you know, we're, she has no idea what the shirt says. She can't read English. And we're all saying that she's talking about God working and moving in her church. We're all just going, <laughs> trying not to die, just trying not to laugh at this poor lady. Um, well, that's kind of what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, you know, when you're not careful about the things that have meaning in your culture and you don't honor that, it's distracting in worship, okay? And he's telling them, you know, sure, you may have freedom to do this and the Corinthians were all about freedom, we're all about their personal rights. But he's saying, you know, you've got to be respectful of how you dress and how you conduct yourself so that in the midst of worship, you are not a distraction to others, Okay? And that's really what he's talking about here. In fact, he says even that, uh, kind of a weird verse, he says even the angels are watching. So ladies, put a hat on to the Corinthians because even the ladies are watching and it's embarrassing. You know, the angels are asking God, God, why is that lady got her hair down? That kind of thing. Um, So basically, Paul is saying dress appropriately to the Corinthians. Dress in a way that doesn't take away or distract from worship. And his, his instructions are very simple. He says, men, don't wear a head covering because you honor your head 
who is Christ, by leaving it uncovered. Again, that was contrary to Jewish custom, and it would have meant something different. And I'm sure when, Jew, when, when Paul went into a synagogue, he would have covered his head in deference to that culture. But in Corinth, he was following the culture and traditions of that place. And likewise, he said to, to women, and really to all of them, you need to first of all dress in a way that honors God. Uh, and that means, first of all, respecting gender differences. And I think we could glean out of this if we boil it down uh, that Paul is saying here, when we dress, when we go to church, and I think in general, that it's appropriate for women to dress like women and guys to dress like guys. That we honor God by reflecting his created design for us. That women ought to be feminine and beautiful, and guys should be, well, guys, you know. They should be manly. Um, that means... Uh, you know, women should, should dress in, in a way that brings out their beauty, okay? And guys should not, okay? It means that for guys, you know, flowery shirts, lots of pink, mousse in your hair, it's not modern, it's gay, okay? And you need to be careful that you don't cross the line, all right? Keep your manliness when you dress. Women, keep the feminine side of your beauty. And that's honoring to God, Okay? Secondly, honoring God means um, dressing in a way that we, we honor God, but also we want to dress in a way that honors our spouse. Okay? And uh, that basically means dress modestly. Okay? Uh, Paul says, it dishonors your, women, it dishonors your husband in Corinth. If you're wearing your hair down, which is an act or in that culture a symbol that was reserved for your husband alone. Okay? That... that display of your beauty is taking the beauty too far. Okay, dress beautiful, but not too beautiful. Okay? And there's a difference, and there's really a fine line of distinction for women between dressing beautiful and dressing in a way that's sexy or seductive. Now, see, guys don't really have that problem. You know, we either have clothes on or we don't have clothes on, and either way, it's neither seductive nor sexy, uh, for the most part. But for women, that's not true. Okay? For women, there's beautiful, and then there's crossing a certain line where it's not just beautiful, it's seductive. Okay? It's design and its intention goes beyond just displaying the beauty that God has given you to using that beauty in a way to draw men's eyes to you with a certain intention and meaning. That's not honoring to your husband present or future if you're single. You know, I'm, I'm single, so I can be sexy and seductive because I don't have a husband. Well, you dishonor the husband of your future by how you dress now. Okay, when you dress in a way that's beyond just beautiful but is seductive, you are dishonoring really God and ultimately your, your husband present or future. Well, how do you know that, how do you spell this out? What does this look like? You know, in Corinth it meant not letting your hair fall down. Obviously in all our culture, those guidelines don't apply anymore because it doesn't mean the same thing in our culture. So consequently, ladies, you don't have to wear a hat to church, okay? If you were worried, you know, I didn't bring a stack of doilies to pass out at the end of the service. Okay, you don't have to worry about it. Because that no longer means the same thing. And in fact, one of the things that this passage tells us is that we must be careful students of what it, what it does mean in a given culture. We need to be careful that uh, there are things in given cultures that are seductive 
that may not be in your native culture. And for those of us who live cross-culturally, we need to be sensitive to that. Uh, I am told I've never lived in a Muslim culture, but I'm told that in, in Muslim cult- cultures, a woman's bare shoulder is considered very suggestive and very inappropriate. So if you live in that kind of a culture, it would not be appropriate to dress with uh, an open-shouldered shirt. If you're in America, you know, just pretty much having any kind of shirt on is good. Because, you know, there's just not a lot of boundaries there anymore. All right? Um, which, which is also to say that when the culture is overly permissive, it's probably better to err on the side of being overly conservative. It's probably better to be a bit too modest than to be too cultural. All right? Because it ultimately is to honor God. And uh, we're going to talk later about headship and how we honor our head and what that means. But we want to address, and that's kind of what the, the general point Paul is making here, especially in worship, but really in all of life, that we learn to dress appropriately, that we honor gender differences, that we uh, honor the beauty and strength that God has given us, but we don't cross lines that would compromise uh, our character, our holiness, uh, and our purity. Um, so that's kind of the first general point. And it would be great to just stop there and because uh, that's really not all that controversial, hopefully. Uh, but uh, I, I want to go to the next point, which is a bit deeper. And really, Paul bases this whole argument on a much more important principle that I want to talk about uh, over the next two weeks. And uh, it, it, it's, it's how he starts his argument in verse 2, verse 3, really. He says... Uh, there's one thing I want you to know. Let me actually read it out of a different translation because I don't like the, NI, the New Living Translation on this verse. He says in 11 verse 2, there's one thing I want you to know. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a woman is man. And the head of Christ is God. A man dishonors his head, that is Christ, if he covers his head while praying or prophesying. But a woman dishonors her head, that is, her husband, if she prays or prophesies without a covering on her in a way that's inappropriate, uh, for this is the same as shaving her head. Uh, I want to look at this deeper principle. And it's important to note that this principle came before the application in worship. Okay, the principle of headship is foundational. There's a lot of people that would like to turn that around and say that, well, the principle was cultural, and out of that cultural context, Paul makes this assertion about headship. But that's reading the passage backward. Paul starts here, he says, the very first thing I want you to know is this. There is an order of headship in the universe, and it goes like this. Christ is the head of every man. And there is a man who is the head of a woman, probably speaking there directly of a husband and a wife. And he says, and Christ himself has uh, over him the headship of God the Father. Uh, That is the beginning principle, and Paul bases everything he says in this passage on this foundational principle or truth about how the universe operates. Um, The the man is the head of a woman, and the woman is supposed to dress appropriately, first and foremost, to honor her husband. Okay, that's the principle that he's stating here. And the 
the foundation of why this is important? Well, the first question we have to ask and that the world is asking is, did God really, was God really crazy enough to put men in charge? You know, is that really what this means? Well, let's look at this. What is headship? Uh, And we're going to look next week a, a lot more in detail of what headship is, how it's lived out. But to start with, what is headship? Some people, some commentators and modern uh, scholars have tried to translate this word to mean source or origin. Okay, they would use it like we would say of the, the head of a river, meaning the source or origin of a river. Okay? Um, the problem is that that word is never used any other place in, in, in the Bible or in Greek literature to de- with that meaning when it's used of a person. In other words, it's used that way of a river or of other things. But when it's used of a person or of God, it never means source or origin. It always means authority. Okay, that's what its general use and meaning is. Uh, we, we have that same meaning in our own language. If I say he's the head of the company, what does it mean? Well, it means he's the boss. It means he's in charge. If I say that person is the head of the organization, what does it mean? Does it mean he's the origin and source of the organization? No. It means he's the guy in charge, right? Uh, that's how we use the word, and that's also how they would certainly have used the word, and it's, it's certainly how Paul meant it here. And as we look later of what it meant for Christ to be head, we'll see that. Um, in fact, let me just read John, John 17. One says this, speaking of Christ's headship. Uh, in John 17, it says this, after, after saying these things, Jesus looked up to heaven, and he prayed, Father... The hour has come, glorify your Son so he can give glory back to you. For you have given the Son authority over everyone. When we talk about the headship of Christ, we don't simply mean he is the origin or source of all men, which he is, but we really mean his authority. Jesus has the right to rule human beings. Okay, and his headship is one of authority. That's what the basic meaning of the word is here. Um, Paul goes on further to explain what this means and he puts it in, in terms of God's original design or plan for the universe. Okay? In other words, this headship thing with Christ as head over man and man as head over woman isn't just something that is a, um, a concession of the Bible to a male-dominated culture. It's indeed the, the way God created the universe from day one. Well, how do we know that? Well, look in verses 7 and 9. And Paul argues it uh, all the way back to Adam and Eve at creation. He says this, A man shouldn't wear anything on his head when worshiping, for man is God's glory and made in God's own image. But the woman came from man. Man was not made for woman's benefit, but woman was made, the woman was made for man's benefit. So for that reason, the woman should wear a covering on her head as a sign of authority. Paul goes all the way back to creation. He says, look, when Adam was created in the garden, uh, God created Adam first. This doesn't, I want to say, you know, before women start throwing things at me, it doesn't mean guys are better. It certainly doesn't mean they're smarter, okay? I know that from experience. Okay, it doesn't mean that they are um, in any way above women in equality. And we'll talk about that in a minute. 
But the reality is this, plain and simple, that when God wanted to create a being in his image, he created man first. And it says that because of that, man was created as God's glory. What does he mean by that? Well, he means that the man is the expression fully of, and, and his, his existence is so that his life reflects God's glory back to him. Okay, that's why God created Adam. Uh, we see that in the way, in the nature of the way God made men. God made men with a mission. It is part of our very character and nature that men are, are, are task-driven. We have a mission. We are conquerors and warriors by nature. Okay, we are doers. We are builders. We are, uh, we are conquerors. And that's because God has put in us the mission of reflecting back his glory. Now, it doesn't mean that women aren't also created in God's image, and he doesn't say that. In in fact, in Genesis, it makes it very clear that God created both man and woman in his image. And it's equally true that women also, because they are human, and because they are created in God's image, also reflect back God's glory in a very special way. But the the truth and the reality is that men do it primarily and foremost as the number one reason of their existence. But the truth is also there, and, and you know, I didn't make this up, so don't throw things at me. Argue with the manufacturer. That God made women for man. God looked at man and he said, okay, this is good, man is good, I like what it is, it's created in my image, but man, that guy is lonely. And, you know, he is not complete unless he has a partner suitable for him. So he put Adam to sleep and he made, he took a a rib out of Adam, took a part out of Adam, and out of that he formed woman as a helper to him. In other words, woman was created uh, as man's glory, he says. There is something about woman that, that is, for us guys, our glory. Okay? And, uh, you know, we're not glorious. We get married, and, we, and glory comes into our life in a very special way. And I hope you guys who are married cherish and prize your wife as the glory of your life. God made her specially fitted to you. Okay? And so Paul, Paul's argument here is that headship is partly because of the order of creation. That men have, be, husbands have been placed as head over their wives because God made it that way from creation. Okay, it's the created order of the universe. Um, women are not builders. Well, actually, it's not true. Women are builders. But whereas men build houses, women build homes. Women are, by nature, experts at relationship. I think God gave Eve to Adam to teach him to talk. You know, if it wasn't for Eve, men would just grunt. <laughs> you know? And... Uh, and God said, it's not good, man needs to learn how to talk. So he built a machine that talks a lot and teaches the guy to communicate. Okay? And that's her function. It's part of her job. So he doesn't just sit there and grunt a lot and pick his nose. That he learns to communicate and to interact with another human being. Right? And that's, what, that's why women are great at relationships. They are natural at that. And they are homemakers. They build a place where there is relationship and where there is, there, there is this community, where there is togetherness. And you see, there's a lot of feminists. Right now, there's a huge move among feminists 
we're trying to say that there's no science to back this up. That the distinctions and differences between men and women are just a product of society. And that if you were to remove all the learned cultural learning that we put on our children, that those distinctions would not be true. I'll tell you, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see it in a six-month-old child. Okay, I didn't teach any of my daughters to play with dolls and to take little wooden spoons and make little families out of little wooden spoons. Okay, they did that instinctively. Okay, likewise, you don't teach your, your boys to go out and break things and to run into walls. They just do that instinctively, right? They just do that. Here's a boy expert. I'm a girl expert. John and Susanna are, are, girl, are boy experts. I'm a girl expert. They are different from birth. Okay? It's part of God's order and design for the universe. And this is important because um, like any product that comes with a warning label, you know, they say, you know, please use according to the manufacturer's suggestion, use. Not responsible if used otherwise. Like if you take your cell phone and use it as a hammer... The manufacturer is not responsible either for the fact that it didn't work very well as a hammer or that afterward it no longer works as a phone, right? It's designed for a certain use and purpose and if you use it otherwise, the manufacturer is not responsible. And I really believe that God says, look, I built you this way. Whether you're a man or woman, I designed you with a certain function and purpose and if you use your life otherwise, don't blame me that your life doesn't work. Okay, because you're going against how I created you. Okay? And the fact that you're miserable and unhappy is not my fault because you misused the product contrary to how I designed it. Um, so yes, I do believe the bottom line is this, that God did, scary as it is, God did put men in charge. Okay? Now we're going to look more at what that means uh, in detail. And, and I will, I, I, let me say up front that I really believe that men have grossly misunderstood what their headship means. So when I say that, yes, God put men in charge, it's very important that we understand that from God's perspective of what it means to be in charge, what it means to be head, what it means to have authority and how to use that as God designed and intended it. So we'll look at that further. Um, Let me also say this. It's true that God put men in charge, but it is also equally true that the principle of headship applies to every single person on earth. Okay, just because men are a husband, specifically a husband may be head over his wife, does not mean that men live differently than a woman. Every man is under headship just like every woman is. Every human being on this earth is to live under authority and headship of those that God placed over him. And ultimately, he says in this verse, that every man must live with Christ as his head. Okay? Uh, We must learn to live as people who are under authority. Okay? In fact, part of being a good leader, being one who exercises our authority well, is learning to live under the full authority and headship of Christ in our life. Okay? That is mandatory. And it's something that we all do. So when God put women under headship, he didn't put them in a unique position that is foreign to a man. All of us must live in submission under the headship of authority. And we must 
follow and submit and live in a subordinate relationship at some point in our life. Um, and the, the amazing example of this is Christ himself. And what's really important to see in this is that this principle of headship and subordination is not something that God created or invented when he made the world. He didn't start it with the husband and wife relationship. It actually predates creation. And uh, we see that when he says, and he, with this phrase that then he says, the head of man is Christ, the head of the wife is the husband, or the woman is the man, but the head of Christ is God. And to me this is a, a mind-blowing thing, that headship and submission is something that reflects the very trinity that existed in eternity. God himself lives in this kind of relationship within the Trinity. Uh, One of the the things that people will argue, and in fact feminists will argue very loudly, is that for men to be in charge puts women at an unequal place. That if men are in charge, there is an inequality. But I want to look at a couple passages about what it meant for Jesus to be uh, under the headship of God the Father. And just to start off, are Jesus and God equal? Absolutely yes. In every way, God the Father and God the Son are equal in being and in essence. For Jesus to be under the headship of God did not in any way compromise his deity. It didn't make him any less of a God. He was absolutely 100% God. He was the creator God who spoke the world into existence. But he did all that as one who lived under the authority of the Father. Notice what Jesus said about himself in John chapter 5. Really, um, some of the most amazing words uh, Jesus spoke about his own existence. Um, in chapter 5, verse 19, he says this. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the Son cannot do anything by himself. The Son can't do anything by himself. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. Jesus says, here's Jesus, God incarnate. He created everything. Colossians says that our very breath is dependent on the sustaining force of Jesus at work in the universe. Jesus is infinite in love and wisdom and power in every way that God is. And yet Jesus said these words. He said, I cannot do anything apart from the Father. I live in a completely subordinate relationship to God the Father. A little bit later he says, I don't do my own will. I don't do what I want. I only do the will of the Father. In John 7, he says, um, he says, so Jesus told them, my message is not my own. It comes from God who sent me. Anyone who wants to do the will of God will know whether my teaching is from God or is merely my own. Those who speak for themselves want glory only for themselves. But a person who seeks to honor the one who sent him speaks truth, not lies. Jesus says, the reason for all this is that God receives ultimate honor and glory when he is, the, he is the head. When he is the one 
whose will is being accomplished and exercised by my activity. Jesus says it must be this way because the only way I can really glorify the Father is by walking in submission to his headship. So Jesus says, I don't do anything. I don't move a single finger unless it is in line with God's will. In fact, he goes so far later, he says, in, or earlier in John chapter 3, he said that every single word I speak, every word, and the Greek word there speaks of specific words, comes from the Father. When God asks us to be in a subordinate relationship under the authority of another, he is not asking us to do something he himself does not do. God and the Trinity lives in this kind of relationship. Remarkable, and it's confusing. I, mean, I don't know how this works. You know, uh, how God who is God in the Father and God is God in the Son can have this subordinate relationship, but it's true they do. And so when Jesus calls us to this, he calls us to us first and foremost because it's a reflection of his own character. The marriage relationship between husband and wife is to reveal and reflect the very nature and essence of God. And we do that through this subordinate relationship. Uh, at the same time, we get a picture that this subordinate relationship with Christ doesn't make him a blind puppet who just uh, has his strings pulled. He goes on to say, and also in John chapter 5, he says, For as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so he, the Son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges no one. Instead, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge so that everyone will honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Uh, while it's true that Jesus lived in complete dependence upon the Father, committed totally to the Father's will, it's also true that God gave Jesus incredible authority. Uh, did Jesus make decisions? Absolutely. Did he act uh, with a great deal of autonomy in his life? Absolutely. Did he have authority over other people? Absolutely. In fact, it says that all men are under his authority. He has been given authority to judge all people. Jesus says, I save those whom I want. But he exercises that authority as one who's received it from the Father. Um, Jesus also exercises authority over all things. And in this we get a picture, a little glimpse of what headship is about. For those of us who are in authority, Jesus' example is a great model. Let me read from Ephesians 5. Speaking of marriage, where Paul also writes this, uh, For wives this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For a husband is the head of his wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He is the Savior of his body, the church. As the church submits to Christ, so you wives should submit to your husbands in everything. For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Okay, and here he explains what his headship over the church looks like. Jesus gave up his life for her, that is the church, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word, he did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. For Jesus, he lived under the headship of God, but he also is a head. And we get a picture of what that headship is about. And first of all, it means to be ultimately responsible for somebody. 
If you are head, it seems, means simply this. It means the buck stops here. Okay? Which really is not a very fun place to be. It's always great when people complain to say, it's not my fault. You've got to go up a level. You know, I'm just doing what I was told. Okay, it's a drag when you're the one who said it. You know, when you're the one who gave the order and the buck stops with you. Okay, Jesus says, ultimate responsibility lies with me. And when he speaks of that in this passage, he speaks specifically of providing everything necessary for the salvation and provision of his children. Okay, being head means this. It means taking ultimate responsibility to save and protect and to provide for those under your care. Okay, it doesn't mean to sit in your lazy boy watching football games, grunting for beer. Okay, sorry. It doesn't mean that. Okay, I guess we're Christians, so we grunt for Coke or something. I don't know. Okay, it doesn't mean that. To be ahead means to take ultimate responsibility for the care and protection of those under you. It also means to do that with unconditional love, being willing to sacrifice yourself to to the greatest extent to provide that protection and that provision. Jesus, it says, gave up his own life to purchase his church, to, to cleanse her and make her holy. He gave up his life. Being in a head is not a life of luxury and ease and comfort where everybody comes to your beck and call and fulfills all your whims. It is the opposite. It is sacrificing your life out of love for those under your care because you want the very best for them. Because you are concerned for their well-being and you would die to bring about their holiness and sanctification. Okay? Is it easy to be ahead? It is not easy. It is an incredible responsibility. Uh, An incredible responsibility. If you are a husband, Jesus lays on us an amazing burden to be as Christ was to the church. Because that's headship. And we'll talk more about that in its practical application next, next time. Um, last thing. Let me, let me close with this last thought. Uh, in terms of Jesus' example, okay, and I would, I would encourage you to go home and really reflect on what it meant for Jesus to live in this subordinate relationship under the Father and as a head over his church. But I want to close with one last thought about what this meant for Jesus. Also in John chapter 4, uh, the story of the, of the woman at the well. At the end of that story, after Jesus had had this long conversation with the woman at the well and had shared the gospel with her, uh, the, the setting of that story is Jesus had been walking all day through Samaria, it was about lunchtime. He sits down by the well. It's hot. He's tired. He's thirsty. He's exhausted. The disciples go into town to get food. And while they're in there, he has this discussion with the woman at the well. The disciples come back with lunch. They went to McDonald's. They got the Big Macs and French fries. They've already eaten most of the food because they were starving. And they bring back Jesus a few crumbs and with guilty looks on their face. And, um, and the story goes like this. Says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging Jesus... Rabbi, eat something. But Jesus replied, I have a kind of food you know nothing about. Did someone bring him food while we were gone, the disciples asked? Then Jesus explained, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. 
Jesus says, you know, I live, my whole being, everything about me centers on the will of my Father, who is my head. My life is consumed with, with doing his work and nothing else. There, there's, a, there's a thinking in our world today that says, you cannot be happy unless you are in control of your own life and doing your own thing. And that if anybody is over you telling you what to do, that you cannot possibly be happy. That, 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 that's the antithesis of what makes life happy and good. But Jesus says the exact opposite. I have spent my whole life never doing my own thing, never doing what I want. I have totally sold myself out to the headship of another and have committed everything in my life to doing what that person wants. Has it been a drag? Jesus answers, no. It is so fulfilling that it feeds me even more than food on a day when I should be starving. It is that satisfying. It is that fulfilling. And I would just challenge us with this word. Uh, God made this order, and in it there is joy and satisfaction. When we learn to live under the headship of another and fulfill its responsibilities as God's assigned, it is fulfilling. It is good. It is, it is better than food. Now, for me, that would be a lot. Okay, better than food. Better than Swenson's, man. It would have to be good to be better than Swenson's. Right, Tom? Although, Tom, he's not eating now. He's losing all kinds of weight. So he's doing God's will and he's just giving up food. He's still eating Swenson's. All right. Um, wouldn't it be great if life was so good? Serving others. Giving yourself sacrificially to love and care for others. Taking your charge seriously. And instead of living constantly for yourself, you were living for others. And I believe that if we do that, we will discover what Jesus is talking about here. That it is better to give than to receive. That there is a food. There is a sustaining uh, fullness in life that comes by giving and by serving others, by investing our life in someone else's will. Now, obviously, that person's will has to be governed and directed by God, not the world. And we'll talk about that next week. And there are limits. And we'll talk about, you know, well, what if my husband's an alcoholic and he beats me? We'll look at that next, next time. But, but let's just set this up as an ideal that Jesus models for us. That the, the, the great design of life is that we give and that we find joy and fulfillment in ultimately doing God's will and serving others and pouring our life out. Jesus finishes the rest of the, his, his comments to his disciples by saying, My nourishment comes from doing the will of God who sent me and from finishing his work. You know the saying, four months between planting and harvest. But I say, wake up and look around. The fields are already ripe for harvest. The harvesters are paid good wages, and the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. What joy awaits both the planter and the harvester alike? Um, What joy awaits the planter and harvester alike? When we give our life to the Father's will, there's joy in it. Let's pray. Father, I, I recognize that uh, these are hard words 
to many, and even to me, Father, uh, they are so contrary to our culture that uh, really mocks and ridicules this notion that men should be leaders in their homes. And, uh, and also, Father, I realize that the church has misunderstood and misapplied this teaching and have used it as an excuse for men to be anything but godly leaders, uh, to use and abuse women and mistreat them and really just to step on them. And Lord, that's also not uh, the right meaning of these words. And so, Father, I, I just come realizing that it's a sensitive issue and a difficult one. And I pray, Father, that you would teach us by your Spirit. Lord, teach us what it means to be people who live with the right head, with the rightly related life to you, uh, to live under the authority of those you've placed over us, and to do it joyfully as a way to accomplish and fulfill your work and your will in our life. Father, most of all, help us to not be so proud, not be so defiant, but to be humble people who are yielded to you, who are submitted to your, above all, to your lordship in our life, and willing to submit ourselves to the human authority you've placed around us. Lord, we ask that you would give us strength to do that in your power. In Jesus' name, amen.